Welcome. We're delighted and honored to have so many of you with us today for our Muthi Law Firm monthly teleconference series. Today's topic is on H-1B, the processing and the overview. We're happy that you, to have an amazing team with us today in attorney Yunhei Gong, who's in the H-1B department or non-immigrant department at the Muthi Law Firm, and Korzad Mehta, who um, is also working in the H-1B and doing a bunch of other projects, as well as for medical professionals. Uh, I am Sheila Muthi, and um, we're just going to go over some of the overview of the H-1B processes and go through specific issues and try to help you and guide you as you make your plans to start preparing cases to file on or about around April the 1st of 2009 for an H-1B that will start on October 1 of 2009. As most of you know, in terms of a broad overview, the reason that we have to be rushing to file all of these cases is because you have an H-1B cap each year which, with a quota or limitation of only 65,000 H-1s. And while 65,000 does sound like a large number, it's important to remember that this is for worldwide quota and out of the 55,000, about 6,500 6, or 6,500 of them are generally used up for nationals of Chile and Singapore, leaving only about 58,500 in the entire worldwide quota for every single person who is subject to the H-1 quota to be filed. In addition, of course, uh, as most of you are probably aware, there are an additional 20,000 numbers or slots for individuals who have completed a master's degree or higher education from a United States U.S. school or U.S. university. So, Yunhei, let's get started with you. Sure. Uh, what do you think about the time frame to file H-1 cases? You know, how does this timing really work, and why are we all talking about April 1 for an October 1 day? Sure. Well, the cap numbers become available at the beginning of each fiscal year, which is October 1st. So, the next fiscal year starts on October 1st, 2009. However, the H-1B cases can be filed at least six months in advance of the start date. So, the cases can be filed as early as October, I mean, I'm sorry, as early as April 1st, 2009. However, because there are so few cap numbers, we strongly advise that the cases be filed to arrive at the USCIS on April 1st and no later. But one thing to note is that if the cases reach the USCIS before April 1st, they will be rejected for filing more than six months prior to the employment start date. Yeah, that's a very good point. Kursad, so tell us, now who would actually be subject to the H-1B quota or cap? Because that's very important to try and figure out if we can somehow find an exception if we are not lucky to be selected. Thanks, Sheila. Um, first of all, we'd look to see if the um, intending employee, the prospective employee, has ever been counted against the cap in the first place. Um, if Typically, if they've been counted against the cap, then they're not going to count against the cap again. Um, secondly, we can look to see whether the actual employer who's uh, offering the job is exempt from the, uh, from the cap. There are certain categories of employers that never have to worry about the cap. And these are employers such as universities, nonprofit entities that are affiliated with universities, as well as uh, nonprofit and governmental research organizations. Um, also, 
going back to individuals, certain individuals do not count against the cap, and those are physicians who have received a waiver of their J-1 home residency requirement through a um, interested government agency waiver. Now, that doesn't mean every doctor is necessarily going to be uh, cap exempt, but th those physicians that have received a waiver uh, under th this specific uh, this specific statutory provision would be. Also, persons who have previously been counted against the H-1B cap within the previous six years are uh, are uh, quota exempt. Um, you know, so in summary, a person would only be counted once against the cap unless she has uh, had a year outside of the United States, thereby resetting the clock on the six-year limit. Okay, so these are the four major categories, and I think the six-year cap exempt, we keep getting questions. I've been getting a few questions recently on that specific issue, and I think one has to be very careful because there's not been a lot of regulations or guidance on this. And while we're successful in some cases and others, they could give us a hard time and it's safer when planning to plan with the most conservative view. Again, understand each of these issues that we're going over with you all, whether you're employers, employees, individuals, is each of these itself, we could spend an hour or two on each question, which we're going over very briefly to give you this broad overview. Yunhei, can you explain a little bit more about the timing? When should people start preparing for the, their cases? Sure, Sheila. Um, I cannot emphasize enough how important it is to plan ahead. The cap case, CAPS cases should start as soon as possible, and our office has started accepting those H-1B CAP cases. And the cases that we have accepted will be prepared in advance so that they can reach the USCIS on April 1st. And we want to make sure that all cases are ready for employer signatures in early March 2009. And also, please do understand that there are several steps involved in preparing an H-1B petition. First, um, our office will collect all the necessary information and documents from both the petitioner and the beneficiary, and then we'll begin preparing the petition. Once the petition is prepared, then it is sent to the employer for their review and signatures, and then the employer has to sign the documents and send us back the original petitions and the forms back to our office before it can be filed with the USCIS. Meanwhile, the employer will also need to comply with the LCA requirements such as posting the notice of filing, creating public access files, and providing a copy of the LCA to the beneficiaries. Um, so as you can see, there are, are many steps involved in preparing H-1B petitions, so, so the better, the sooner that you start the process. Sure, that makes perfect sense, Yune. And in fact, you know who you were, but a company just said, why can't we start everything in March of next year to file by the end of March, by early April? And my answer was no. It's like building the foundation of the home. You don't want to be rushing and cutting corners and then in the last minute doing something without properly taking care of stuff because that's when mistakes happen and that's when the case can get denied or rejected. And a lot of the problems and the RFEs that we are seeing for H-1B consulting companies is because people are trying to cut corners, file in a rush, and not plan and do a really thorough and good job, which, me, which we all at the Murthy Law Firm really cannot emphasize. Whether we are filing your case, you're doing it in-house or through your other company lawyer, please make sure that you invest sufficient time to do an excellent and thorough job so that it does not come back with a potential RFE or a denial down the road. Korzad, what are the qualifications for an H-1B? Well, you know, in, you know, just to start off, we have to remember what is an H-1B. An H-1B is job, employer, and area of intended employer employment specific. And what we're going to focus on the question you just asked is, you know, what do you need to qualify for the job? And 
an H the job that's offered to an H-1B non-citizen is has to be a specialty occupation. And what is a specialty occupation? A specialty occupation is one that requires a bachelor's or higher degree or an equivalent in a specific field. Of course, a foreign national candidate must possess the required education and uh, or its equivalent at the time the case is filed. Um, but the fact that the beneficiary has a bachelor's degree doesn't make the position a specialty occupation. So the fact that your intended employee has a bachelor's degree is great, but if the employment that you're offering is uh, one that requires you know, an associate's degree, that would not qualify as a specialty occupation. Also, it's important to remember that if your position requires a bachelor's degree in any field, it's not going to be a specialty occupation. So for example, if the beneficiary has a bachelor's degree in fine arts, he or she may not qualify for an H-1B specialty occupation like a software engineer occupation, which requires a specific degree in a specific field, unless the beneficiary can show that he or she has the equivalent of a bachelor's degree in computer science or a directly related field, and that's typically shown by uh, a combination of education or experience. Actually, that's a good point, and what I'm often asked is, oh, my, my relative or friend has a bachelor's in English, so they cannot get an H-1B. No, that's wrong. You can get an H-1B with a bachelor's in English if the job requires a bachelor's in English. For example, for an English teacher, a fine arts teacher, of course you need a bachelor's in, uh, or a master's degree in English, and an H-1B is certainly possible because the job is required to be a specialty occupation which requires the minimum of an attainment of a bachelor's degree in order to perform the job. It's H-1s are not only meant for the computer or IT professionals, though it feels like a huge number or percentage of them are certainly being used today in the high-tech technology, biotechnology areas. Um, so talking about IT consulting, and I sort of, it pays into that, I'm sure many of you as consulting companies are seeing the kinds of problems that are being encountered by uh, information technology businesses and companies, especially consulting companies. How can we try to address these questions? That's the, uh, a lot of the consultations that I get, Aaron in our office gets, Korzad, Yunhei, everybody gets, is how can we try to minimize it? Well, the USCIS, under the way the law and the regulations are re written, require that the actual work sites of the beneficiary be identified at the time of filing the petition. Obviously, this is extremely challenging when you have to file it six months in advance of the start date, and you have to prepare it four months before the filing date, and you don't know what kind of contracts you're gonna get in the future. Because with consulting companies where the H-1B workers are to be placed at end client sites, these locations of the actual employment have to be identified and listed on the H-1 application, which is obviously no mean task. Also, the labor condition applications are certified for the place of employment with the prevailing wage to be determined by the Department of Labor based on the place of intended employment which again has to be determined at the time of filing. No, again, this is very difficult, which is why we often see RFEs for consulting companies for this specific reason, because many of them are unable to file in those, know about it, so they end up saying that it's an in-house project focusing on the headquarters, and a lot of the Department of Labor and ICE audits that we are seeing are because the headquarters of the location is a very, very tiny office, 200, 200, 300 square feet, and you are claiming to have 10, 20, 30 employees, which is impossible physically to see 30 employees in 200 square feet. Um, so if the H-1 workers are working on specific projects, we need to have evidence in the form of contracts, purchase orders, or statements, 
with the actual end client, which because of the layers of peep companies involved or people involved, it's very difficult for consulting companies. But the USCIS is denying or issuing RFEs routinely for this reason. So the employer must have specific projects which are contemplated at the time of filing. There needs to be evidence in the form of contracts or purchase or orders to make this work to avoid the RFE or a denial of the H-1 petition. Without these documents, we will have a problem. So please try to get as much evidence and documents in advance, which is why we at the Murthy Law Firm actually start the filing for you all months in advance so that we're not caught off guard at the 11th hour trying to rush and try to get the purchase orders or the letters from the end user clients. Yunhe, what are the proactive steps in order to try and avoid RFEs? Because it seems like some of this is inevitable. Yeah, Sheila, as you've mentioned, basically the, the employer has to have a qualifying employment at the time of filing, and which means that the employer must have a specific project in mind at the time of filing. Uh, companies sometimes get RFEs questioning the number of H-1B filed in relation to the total number of their current employees. Also, there are RFEs citing failure to pay proper wages in the past to H-1B employees. So do pay your H-1B employees the prevailing wage or the proper wage. Well, I guess it's easier said than done. If my company is losing money every month, how can I be paying? That is true. You can... Um, and I think we've written an article on this for this week's, this Friday's multi-bulletin specifically about possibly considering part-time H-1B employment, yes. filing H-1B amendments. We have different kinds of ideas right. and suggestions. And again, working with an extremely knowledgeable and experienced lawyer, like as I always say, a good accountant, a good lawyer, a good architect will be a savings in the long run for you and your business and your company because you can plan to save money by strategizing and being extremely proactive with you to help you. Yes, um, you may file an H-1B petition for a part-time for a range of hours instead of full-time so that you will not be liable for full-time wage if the person is um, not able to work. Um, to address these problems after the fact, however, the employer should first withdraw all existing H-1B petitions for the workers who never joined the company or who were no longer employed with the company and also create a chart of every current H-1B H-1B workers with work locations, project status, and, um, and their positions. Um, RF RFEs often ask for this information to demonstrate that the employer is complying with H-1B requirements for its current H-1B employees. Again, the employer must have a specific projects in mind for a beneficiary at the time of filing. Unfortunately, California Service Center has recently stated that a reasonable expectation of employment is not enough. If the employer is not able to demonstrate the employment for full three years, the employer may submit a petition for the actual length of employment that can be shown based on the contract or the statement of work or purchase orders or what other, whatever other documents. So California are. Service Center is now saying if you have a contract only for six months or one year, file an H-1 for one year and then file exactly. another extension exactly. and extension. Instead of asking for full three years if you cannot yeah. show that employment is for full And they've years. often required that over the last 10, 15 years. I've seen RFEs from time to time on stuff like that. Of course, from the business or employer point of view, it's so incredibly expensive with the outrageous, I think, filing fees and premium fee processing fees, et cetera, to pay it. But yes, from a company's point of view, to protect yourself, to get that approval, at least get the uh, H-1 for the one-year approval, then getting the next extension may be easier at some times. But again, it's not a guarantee for the extensions. True. 
And another thing to keep in mind is that USCIS sometimes reviews previous H-1B filings from the same company and also conducts independent research online regarding the company, the company's um, nature of business, including the company's internal projects that they're um, under. So make sure that all the information online um, with your app websites are, uh, are reflect accurate information about the company and make sure that all the information you submit to the USCIS is consistent and verifiable with legitimate documents. Uh, another thing is that you, you should make sure to, in order to avoid RFEs, you should make sure that LCAs are updated um, if the employees are relocated to different job sites and that current H-1B workers have LCAs for all locations where they are actually working. If they do not, then immediately contact, contact an, an attorney to help address the situation. Okay. Um, also, it may be a good idea for you to have an attorney review all your current public access files to make sure that you are in compliance with your DOL LCA requirements at this time. Um, lastly, um, at the time of filing the H-1B cases, carefully track the total number of employees and the total number of H-1B workers so that the LCA can properly be certified with regards to the question of whether the company is an H-1B dependent company because an H-1B dependent company should cons um, may need to take additional steps in order to file a proper LCA. Yeah, and we find that sometimes people, busy employers, don't check off that they're H-1B dependent and the USCIS and Department of Labor could potentially view that as fraud or misrepresentation on the part of the employer. So uh, just because you're very busy and again, waiting to, till March to file for the end of March is not good because then you're more likely to make silly mistakes, typographical mistakes. And again, the government doesn't look at it as a simple typographical mistake. It could cause you very grave danger to you and your business if they prevent for future filings of your H-1Bs for you and your company. Korzad, if the individual or the employee um, who's on H-1B needs to get an H-1B, if they were in another status, whether it's like F-1 or H-4, Will they be able to change and what's generally required in order to make this happen? Yes, they should be able to change. Now, law, law states that you know, to, to, um, to change status, an individual must be present in the United States and also be in a status that is valid through the entire period up until the, uh, up until the change of status would be to take effect. Now, we're going to talk about how that changes in the H-1B context in just a little bit. But if a person has a valid non-immigrant status, such as an F-1 or an H-4, and that would be able to continue until October 1st, then, they, then the person would normally be able to change status in the United States if their case is approved. Now, as of last year, when new regulations came out, people who are in F-1 status, not any other status, but who are in F-1 status, and that status were to end prior to October 1st, they would still be eligible for a change of status and they would also get what's known as an automatic cap gap extension until September 30th. Now the important thing to remember is that they'd only get that if a change of status was requested in, in conjunction with the H-1B petition. Uh, the cap gap extension starts when the student's current period of F-1 status ends regardless of whether the student was an OPT. If the student was not an OPT, OPT being optional practical training, the extension of status starts on the day after the student's initial grace period starts. However, of course, if the petition is rejected in the lottery, denied, revoked, then the uh, cap, cap gap extension will terminate. 
If the beneficiary is not in F1 status or the current status ends prior to October 1st and he or she cannot extend it or get into a different non-immigrant status, then the beneficiary will not be able to change status in the United States. Those cases will usually be set for consular processing. Consular processing means that the individual will need to leave the United States and apply for an H-1B visa at a consulate or embassy abroad to, uh, to uh, be able to effectuate an application for admission to return to the United States. An individual who has been granted an H-1B visa is not permitted to come to the United States, re-enter, more than 10 days before October 1st if they have a valid H-1B visa. Uh, questions about status changes and legal status in the U.S. are very, I'm sorry, are very complex, and specifics are, are uh, determined on a case-by-case -case basis. An individual who's considering a change of status really should speak with a competent attorney before starting the process. So if we are now talking to, in today's teleconference primarily with employers, employers need to discuss this either with a mood attorney at the multi-law firm or whoever, whichever law firm or attorney you're dealing with, hopefully it's us, but if it's not, make sure that the person understands that there are nuances because sometimes it's, especially when you're working with either a paralegal or a very junior attorney to save costs, uh, many of them do not understand and appreciate the subtle complexities involved in processing H-1 petitions because superficially it looks like very simple and you can can it out and it sounds almost like any person can fill it up and it's true that 70, 80, 90% of the simple work can be done but it's always, as they say, the devil is in the details and it's extremely important to have uh, someone look at it and pick up on complex issues or problems or potential issues that could result in RFEs or denials. Uh, you name from a practical point of view and consideration what are the kinds of USCIS or government filing fees on H-1s? Because a lot of times we find that uh, people, individuals, or companies in a hurry will send it with the wrong fee, and that can be extremely disastrous, especially when you only have a, ca a window of a day or a few days to file. Sure. The normal USCIS filing fees for CAP cases are, um, the filing fees may be different for non-CAP cases. For This is for CAP cases. First, there's $320 base filing fee, and then $500 anti-fraud fee, and then there is either $1,500 or $750 training fee, um, and the amount of this depends on the number of employees you have. Um, if you have 25 or less employees, um, the employer must pay $750 training fee. If you have 26 or more employees, the employers must pay the $1,500 um, dollar, $1,500 training fee. The training fee must be paid by the employer. Uh, and, and then there is the optional $1,000 premium processing fee. With premium processing fee, the USCIS adjudicates the case in 15 calendar days. And the, however, the premium processing is a way to, it is a way to obtain a decision faster, but it's not an, um, it does not give an advantage in the cap also, it does not permit employment start date to be before October 1. So, um, if the case is filed without premium processing, it can be upgraded once the receipt notice is issued. Okay, and it's also important to remember that I know we at the multi-law firm uh, have uh, substantially reduced our H-1B legal fees for companies that process multiple petitions at the same time. Uh, we have substantial discounts like uh, um, a lot of, I guess, companies and law firms, and we are especially sensitive because we believe in partnering 
and being a member of your team or family and working with you, especially because the economy is tough, it's a tight market, we are willing to uh, work at or just at the cost price at a very, very substantial discount uh, so that we can partner with you in the long term to process your perm cases and your green cards and other issues uh, as long as we get a substantial number of cases at the same time. We have bulk volume and then we have additional discounts over the bulk volume uh, depending on, again, if there are more number of cases than the 10 per year, 20 per year, 50 per year, et cetera. Um, also, some of the issues from last year. Remember last year, the cap, the government, the USCIS changed their regulations from the year before and switched it from requiring the cases to be filed only on April 1st or April 2nd to giving full five calendar days uh, to be counted in the lottery. Um, if one has to file a day too early or a day too late instead of April 1, I would always prefer a day too late. And I don't mean a day beyond the first five calendar days, I mean beyond April 1st. Because if you, as Yuni had earlier explained, if you file one day earlier, after a month or two, you're going to get a rejection of the file, not a denial, but a rejection because they won't even touch and look at the paperwork because it was filed a day early. Um, if there are sufficient filings on the very first day, uh, by, under the prior regulation, they would have to keep it open for the second day. Now the latest regulation is that they will accept cases for first five days. We don't know yet what they're going to do for 2009. Uh, which is really, um, um, you know, something we're going to have to wait and see what kind of regulations they will issue. Um, so it's the 2000, it's the cases that will be starting uh, on October 1 of 2009, which are going to be filed in 2009, which to confuse matters is referred to as the 2010 USCIS fiscal year. Um, there was also a lot lottery for the advanced degree holders, uh, H1Bs, um, which was also met within the first five days, which was quite unnerving uh, because most universities and colleges do not graduate their students before May or June, and to file it before April 1st can be extremely cumbersome and expensive and time-consuming, and some people actually orchestrated it and planned to complete 100% of their coursework before the end of March, specifically to qualify. And in fact, I know some universities, including University of Maryland, has actually changed some of their courses and graduating to help their H-1B candidates because universities are being sensitive to this issue so that their graduates have two fiscal years or two USCIS fiscal years to take advantage of the H-1 cap filing. Um, so whatever we do, let's all be sensitive. Look for the latest uh, postings on murthy.com in our Murthy Bulletin, which obviously we are doing to help and uh, guide all of you in the immigrant community because this is part of our work to help each other and help our community, help our own members to succeed and become successful. Uh, Yune and Korzad, let's try to wrap up with trying to understand the timeliness. Uh, if it's our office, we're, as I said, extremely uh, uh, detailed-oriented and want to do this right. So can you explain that, Yune, and then Korzad, you can explain that too? Sure. As mentioned, we have already begun accepting HLB cap cases for the next fiscal year. And we strongly, strongly recommend that you open your H&B cap subject cases with our office on or before Friday, February 29th, 2009. And uh, once the case is opened, uh, we'll send uh, documents to the uh, employers for review and signature. Uh, ideally, what we'd like is for those documents to re be re returned to us before March 27th, 2009. 
Okay, I think your name meant February 27. Whatever yes. it is, it's the last day of February. Let's not get technical here. Ideally, you really want to start it now. In December, January, and February, do not wait beyond that date. Yes, there is no February 29th. <laughs> <laughs> I apologize. Okay. February 27th, 2009 will be our preferred date to open all our H-1B cap cases. And really, you don't, for your own sake, you really don't want to be rushing, as I pointed out repeatedly. Uh, again, I know we're very time sensitive to the fact that all of you are taking off time probably in the middle of a very busy day to be able to participate and we try to make it within 30 to 45 minutes so I think we are well on schedule today. Uh, we are always happy to share our wealth of knowledge on behalf of Yunhe Korzad and myself and the entire Murthy Law Firm team. We are happy to continue to provide the latest updates to help our company clients, individuals and others to take advantage of the latest, most useful information. We truly look forward to continuing to work with you and partner with you as you continue to grow, succeed, and become a part of the American dream. We look forward to helping you to process your cases for next year, and hopefully, uh, if any of you are unable to qualify, that we can hopefully try to find an exception where you can work either with a university or university-affiliated organization or be subject to a CAP exempt. Uh, H-1B petition. Thank you once again for investing your valuable time and we look forward to continuing to work with you and having you with us next, when, uh, next month, first Wednesday of the month, same place, same time, so that we can continue to work together. Have a wonderful rest of the day. Thank you so much.